finished eating? Yeah. For now, yeah. <laughs> All, right. All right. Why don't you so, kick us off? Kick us off. All right, ready? Go. Do it. Hey, I'm Colin. I'm Heather. And I'm Ashley. And we are three friends from work. We're doing this podcast about stuff we talk about in meetings when we're supposed to be talking about work. We do this every Monday and we take up most of the time to talk about food. <laughs> we talk about books, but most of the time we actually talk about shows. We talk about what shows we're watching, what we think of the characters. We ask each other questions like, what the heck is this about? Storylines and the production values. So each, we're gonna do a series and each series we're gonna focus on a different show. So we'll mix up the shows with regard to like the genre and the style. Um, but the idea is to pick a show that at least one of us knows nothing about because that's what powers our conversations and it leads to a lot of fun. Um, so our first series, Colin, do you want to tell us what our first series is going to cover? Sure. And if we can get a little drum roll in the post-production. Um, I'm excited because I think we're going to be talking about Rings of Power, the new Amazon series. Um, obviously much anticipated. There's been lots of discussion about it, lots of um, conversation. Um, all the way back in 2017, Amazon purchasing the lights, the rights from the Tolkien estate to make this big, beautiful, amazing, complicated show. And we're really excited and hope you guys join along to participate along us and have conversations with us about this show and, and share your opinions and, and let us know exactly um, what you're thinking. Um, because you know, these kinds of conversations only happen when the people you work with become more than just your colleagues. Yes, yes, that's true. And um, a little background on sort of how we decided to do this show. Um, it really was instigated by the fact that Amazon was going to do Rings of Power. Colin and I um, have some um, degree of similarity of taste, and we both really like Lord of the Rings. So we're like, great, we're going to do this podcast. And then I was thinking, you know, we really need to include Ashley because Ashley is awesome, and she knows nothing about Lord of the Rings or any coming of this stuff. Yeah, it's coming in cold. So that's how this podcast was born. So um, yeah, I really can't believe we're here. We've been talking about it for yes. forever. Forever. <laughs> it's been like months and months of I feel like behind the scenes, much like Lord of the Rings in a way, of just kind yeah. of pulling um this idea along. I just it's crazy that the day is finally here to record. I know, and you're you're in Chicago and we're in DC, <laughs> unexpectedly in Chicago, right? I know. I've been traveling around the world for like the last three weeks, and this is like my only weekend where I have some semblance of a normal quiet life. So I'm really excited because it gave me an opportunity to like dig in and actually start thinking about the show and um, kind of have a clean slate to it because I didn't actually watch it when it all came out. I kind of binged it a little bit um, to kind of get prepared for today, um, which I think was really nice because I, I kind of saw them back to back. Yeah. Well, sometimes that's the best way. Yeah. I, I mean, binging, th this is the era of binging shows. So, and I actually, we'll get to this later, but it's interesting that Amazon decided to do it like one every Friday rather uh -huh. than just release the whole thing at once. Appointment TV is back, baby. It's back. <laughs> I'm excited for it. Between this and House of Dragon, and, you know, I think Netflix is the only place that, like, doesn't do this in a... It doesn't really use appointment TV as a strategy, and they should, um, because, honestly, waiting every week, I actually think is really exciting. It helps people talk about it and build the show, 
Um, and for those of you listening in who maybe don't know or haven't really listened to Rings of Power, you know, Heather, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about why we chose it. What is this? Yep. What's going on? Yeah, I mean, we chose it because, well, Colin, if I misspeak, you can just jump in and say that's not true. But like Colin and I both really like Lord of the Rings. And I come at it from the um, the role of a super nerd. I mean, I just, <laughs> I've read a ton of Tolkien's Legendarium. And um, although it's been a long time since I've read it closely, but um, Colin, I think you come at it more from the, as a fan of the films, the Peter Jackson films. Completely. And um, I actually, and I, this is going to be, I don't, can't believe I'm going to say this out loud so that there's a record of it, but I've never read the books. Um, I've tried at least once. I've read about half The Hobbit. Um, mm-hmm. and you, can't, you, can't, you couldn't get through The Hobbit? Uh, no, I couldn't. Um, the Hobbit was read to me actually in third grade oh, by uh, Grayson's dad. Um, and it was a very striking memory. So uh, Lord of the Rings has always actually really had a wonderful place in my heart. Um, the films, I think, are just um, spectacular on so many different levels, mainly because I think it is indicative of a creator who just loves his work. I mean, at every stage, Peter Jackson just poured his life and soul into those original films, and I think you can feel it, and it's infectious, and part of the reason why I love it. It is, um, whenever I move to a new place, the first thing I do is I put on Fellowship of the Ring. Like that is really? literally wow. packing. I will put on this movie. And of course, once I put it on, packing slows down a bit, but um, I get dragged into the story and eventually I have to watch Two Towers and Return of the King. But it is the first thing I christen every home that I, I kind of move into with um, watching The Lord of the Rings, which is um, a really fun tradition. And so I think when this came out and Heather and I were just always talking about it, it just really made sense to maybe start our kind of first podcast in this conversation with this um with this series but I know Ashley you kind of have a different perspective when it comes to Lord of the Rings and where you're entering into all of this yeah I kind of entered into this world I was forced to by my older sister she loves Lord of the Rings so I have zero connection zero background of the rings I did go and see the movies in the theater with uh, her. Were they the extended editions or were these like the theatrical releases? These were, this these was great right when it came out. So this had to have been the, the theatrical before it yeah. had any of the bells and whistles. It had to have been because we, you know, we went to the actual movie theater to see it. This was like mid to early to mid 2000s, I, I want to say. Um, yeah, that's so, when it came out. Yeah. Yeah. So, I'm coming into this not having really remembered even the original storyline. <laughs> so I am representing those of you who are tuning in, who's like, what is Rings of Power? I, I, I am exploring this world again for the first time, not having, I have an appreciation for the genre as a whole. I was a big um, Game of Thrones fan, Harry Potter fan. I thought the visuals the first time around, the, the Peter Jackson version, I thought the visuals were stunning. And it actually made me want to go to New Zealand and I still have not been to New Zealand, but that is the reason I want to go because so much of the original um, Lord of the Rings was shot there, but that's like the extent really. So, okay, you know, I'm coming into this, this fresh. Well, is it helpful for me to like give some context for 
the this show in relation to the Lord of the Rings movies? I think so. For me, yeah. it would be. Okay. So Tolkien, so one of the things to note about the material for Rings of Power is that it is not a, a, a single book. Like it's not a cohesive narrative of like, here's a beginning, here's a middle, here's an end. And there's a specific storyline and an arc because Tolkien wrote basically his entire life, his entire adult life. He wrote stories and he wrote parts of this legendarium and he created languages and he drew maps and- Which is so impressive it. to me that he even created yeah. a language for this. That's so cool, go ahead. Yeah, the languages are they're incredible. I mean, they're almost fully, the, the two Elvish languages he created are nearly fully fleshed out languages, um, which is astonishing. But anyway, um, so because he, as, as you may know, he was a philologist. He like languages were his, what he taught at, mm -hmm. at Oxford University. Did you just make that up? What is a philologist? <laughs> I did not make it up, Colin. It's, it's okay. It sounds like a word that's been made up before. No, no. In, no, in fact, he was really good friends with C.S. Lewis who wrote the Narnia Chronicles among other things. And C.S. Lewis wrote in his diary when he met Tolkien, he was like, my mother told me never to trust a pap papist meaning a Roman Catholic. And mm -hmm. my school of literature told me never to trust a philologist. Tolkien is both. But they became mm -hmm. like really good friends. Anyway, yeah, philology is the study of languages. I am not making this up, Colin. <laughs> anyway, getting back on track. So he, the, literally the first thing he wrote that was part of this whole, um, I keep calling it a legendarium because it's like, it's the only best, it's the best way to put it. The first thing he wrote was on the back of a piece of paper that laid out troop assembly schedules or something like that. It was like, he, was, he wrote it in the barracks, World mm -hmm. War I. He's like, he's away from his wife who he's just married and he's gone off to the front. And of course that sucks. And so mm -hmm. he takes this piece of paper and he turns it over and he starts writing the story of, an, of um, this Elven kingdom of Gondolin. The last thing he wrote was like about a month. And that was like, I wanna say 1917. The last thing he wrote was like about a month before he died and he was sort of tinkering with this character of Galadriel who is in the Rings of Power as you guys know having watched at least the first two episodes. Mm -hmm. So the point is he wrote like for like 70 years and the Rings of Power story that they're going to go through in these supposedly five seasons is stories from what he called the second age. So Tolkien divided his legendarium into three key ages. And the first age is sort of the creation myth and how this all came about. And, okay. um, you know, and, and that's what you see, Ashley, in the very beginning of the first episode, when baby Galadriel is talking to her big brother, Finrod, mm -hmm. about, you know, the boat, the boat that the kids sink and everything. And he walks away and there's these two trees that are kind of glowing. Yes, yes. That is set during the first age in what is essentially Tolkien's version of heaven. It's where the elves live with the gods. So anyway, the second oh, age is what, okay. yeah. So the second okay. age is what this show is gonna cover. And the third age is what Lord of the Rings is set in. So we just rewound in time from the Lord of the Rings trilogy, mm -hmm. the Peter Jackson version. Right. Interesting. Right. So the first scene of the first episode we can think of is the origin story. Well, it's- it's set in the origin story, yeah. That little snippet of her talking to her brother. And she has this long, really long, um, you know, intro narration where she's like, there was this war and we defeated him and he's, he, 
blackened the trees, you know, he destroyed the trees. Remember that whole that exposition at the very beginning yes. of the first episode? That's all the, set in first age. The baddie, who is the the baddie is called Morgoth. He's called Morgoth. Anyway, so that's all set in the first age. And so the beginning of the action starts of, of this show now starts with her obsessively chasing him you know, as you guys like across the ice and stuff, which mm-hmm. I don't know, I'll get into that. I found that annoying, but anyway, <laughs> I found it annoying, but I loved her armor. Um, but anyway, so that's it. The second age is what this show will be covering. And it does cover, in fact, the creation of what else? The rings of power. So you may remember that there are, there's the one ring that Bilbo finds and gives to his nephew Frodo and Frodo has to take all the way to Mount Doom to destroy, right? Remember that? Yes, okay, I do remember that. The one ring is the, this, you know, I can get into who Sauron is, but he creates this ring to rule the other rings that he's created to give to the elves and the dwarves and men. This show is about the creation of all those rings. Okay, I need to back up. (laughs) I know. It's not exactly simple. So what is the purpose of these rings though? What, why do the dwarves need their rings and the humans need theirs and the um, elves need theirs? Like what do these rings promise you? So the rings give you a certain amount of power to, he's not very specific, Tolkien is not very specific, but it like mm-hmm. the rings give you power to protect your realms, or they give you power to to create great uh, works of art, or they give you power to persuade other people. But essentially, they give the bearers of those rings power. And okay. this, the whole creation of these rings, is the brainchild of the new bad guy on the block, who is the servant of the original bad guy, Morgoth. Okay. And they, right, that big bloody war that they fight in the sort of prologue of the first episode. Mm-hmm. The big bad guy, he's he's vanquished completely and banished outside, Tolkien says, outside the circles of the world. He literally can't get back in. His like second in command is this guy called Sauron and Sauron becomes the big, big bad, uh, the big baddie for this whole show as well as the Lord of the Rings films. And he's okay. clever and very subtle. And he's acting like on behalf of Morgoth, right? Like he's somehow in service of his aims. Yeah, it's more that he's but in he's service of he's subservient to him. Morgoth is the devil. Essentially, more, yeah, Morgoth is Lucifer. Okay. He's, and yeah. By the time we land in episode on, you know, season one, episode one, Rings of Power, Morgoth has been vanquished, yep. banished. Yeah really Sauron is his um apprentice his whatever but Sauron we already meet I think that's a prediction but wait I'm not gonna spoil okay um but do 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 all of the characters know like Galadriel for example we know who created these rings of power. We know that these are sources of evil and we're all trying to destroy these rings. Yeah, but not yet because they haven't been created yet in this show. 
this show will be about how Sauron comes to the elves and he looks very fair of form. Right. So very good looking and very, you know, speaks kind of speaks their language, um, metaphorically speaking. I mean, like he's sort of, he's like, hey, I'm one of you. And elves and both elves and dwarves love to make pretty things. They love to make things of beauty. Okay. And one of the themes in Tolkien's whole set of writings is how the desire to create things of beauty can get warped into desire to create things of power. Mm. So you start off with the beauty, but you end up kind of wanting the power. And mm -hmm. it's not that it's inevitable. The elves make plenty of beautiful things and the dwarves make plenty of beautiful things that they just enjoy and share. But there is the potential to want to make something beautiful and possess it to the point that it convey, conveys power or you have power. And that's what Sauron does. He comes to the elves and it, somehow this is going to happen in these five episodes, right? He comes to them and he's like, I am a really great craftsman and I will help you create these rings. I've got this great idea. Let's create these rings. And that's how the whole shit show gets kicked off. I think it's really interesting that you brought up beauty because I, one thing, and I want to jump ahead, but we are jumping ahead. Jump ahead. I, um, that I noticed in the first episode was this discussion of the, and Heather, you got to help me with the pronunciation here, but the Silmarils. Yeah, the Silmarils. And how they were so beauty, beautiful, and, and maybe so pure. Um, I think that was maybe part of the uh, kind of uh, you know, perspective here, that they almost turned Sauron into like into being good, right? And like maybe there is some power and beauty um, inherent in the world. I'm not sure. Yeah, no. It's a very good point because, and the very first line of this episode and this show, I'm pretty sure, is Galadriel's mm -hmm. voiceover saying, nothing is evil in the beginning. Mm. And that is something that also is very much runs through Tolkien's um, sort of ethos is that evil can come into the world, mm -hmm. but it is not the it is not the equal of good. In other words, it's not like a Manichaean universe where there's good and there's evil and they're equal to each other and they exist in balance or they're sometimes out of balance. That is not his view. His view is that all the, the origin of everything is good. And then if it becomes corrupted, it sort of falls and becomes evil. And that evil can't then go on and create new things. Evil can only corrupt what is good. It cannot create on its own. So that's why the film, I see the, sorry, the uh, episode starts, I think, with that phrase, nothing is evil in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, there is a kind of purity to the, um, to the beginning of the whole thing, which is when the gods create elves and men. Um, and I won't go into, the, I can go into this whole story about how the elves rebel and et cetera. But, um, and Galadriel is one of the elves, by the way, who does rebel and she leaves Valinor, which is this place of heaven, and goes to Middle Earth, but um, yeah, there you're right, Colin. It when more the Silmarils are created by uh, Galadriel's uncle. His name is Feanor, and he wants to he wants to capture the light of the two those two trees, and he manages to do it. He captures the light of these two trees in the jewels called the Silmarils, and Morgoth steals one of them and that's Colin what you're referring to like he looks at it and he's 
so overcome, the almost kind of repents. But anyway. I, I find the kind of theme or the thought that evil cannot create, it can only corrupt, mm -hmm. um, to be really, really fascinating. Um, and one that I'm, I'm excited, because I think there's a lot of potential opportunities. Having, I'm the one who's seen the first two episodes. So I'm, I know you guys have seen the first four, so you may even have a better understanding of this, but I already see some potential seedlings to, to grow of seemingly maybe nice characters that maybe, uh, uh, maybe they don't have that. <laughs> well, speaking of characters, so Ashley, do you want to um, run through kind of your okay, sense me, of the characters? I know you. Let me tell you who I wrote down. Okay. Most compelling. And of course, I'm going to be biased towards the women right now because they all had this single trait at the end of the day that just had me fascinated. So the first one is Galadriel. As we know, she opens the entire um, series. She's the first one we see, the elf. And then I also um, wrote down Nori and her friend Poppy mm -hmm. as my top three characters to watch right now. So starting with Galadriel, um, notes that I wrote down or traits that I admire. I wrote down that she is intuitive, but stubborn, mm -hmm. very brave. And I would also say courageous is a subset of brave, but I would say, um, courageous part comes in um, at those final moments when you think she's done for and then she still finds a way to um, make it through. I love her resilience there. So then with Nori, um, I wrote down that she is adventurous, but really what's driving that is her deep sense of curiosity. Um, yeah. I love her rugged and like rebellious nature as well. And that she's so single-minded in her curiosity that she can't really be deterred. She's gonna do what she's gonna do. And then Poppy, what I really loved about her is that she's not only is she loyal, but she's like that voice of reason. She's very sensible and she's always gonna look out for you even though she is rooted in her, her reason her ability to just stop and think through a situation first. And she's very quick-witted. Um, what I, and I say that because of a scene where she is helping Nuri, even though she knows it's like a terrible idea. Um, and I don't wanna give this away because I think this is actually episode three and I don't wanna fast forward here, um, but she's still able to be your friend and help you even when she knows like you're about to do the stupidest thing, but I still got your back and I'm gonna look out for you. When I was writing these all down, what I really think stuck out about these three characters that I love that's so compelling about all of them is that they are, um, they're, they're not people pleasers, which I'm just so gravitated to right now. They're gonna do what they're gonna do whether you like it or not. And I just think that is a um, character trait. And I'm not just gonna say in women, but I think like right now we're all kind of wrestling with that um, as a society right now of, I need to stay true to myself 
and not really um, follow the path right now. I see that a lot in Nori, who's a, what is that, what is that word, Heather, of what foot? I, a hard foot. Hard foot, which um, I have to admit, not to stop you in your tracks, actually, but this is no, one please. of my uh, observations, seemed a bit Irish. Um, a bit? <laughs> and as an Irish American, I was a little uh, taken aback by, um, <laughs> it was just pretty striking that they were uh, these kind of half-civilized, nomadic uh, farmer people were pretty dramatically stylized on the Irish, which is very, very interesting to me. Yeah, and I, I mean, the, um, the dwarves are obviously sort of broadly speaking Scottish. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I do love the accents. I have to be honest. I love, I love Durin and Deesa's accents, but you're right. It's, it is a little, it's a tad, um, a ca like uh, putting people in a box, you know. Yeah, like a characterization. Yeah, but what did you? Okay, so you, you mentioned a bunch of. Um, the women, what did you think of some of the male, the men in the show, character-wise? Um, I'm, I'm really liking the men. I, I would, coming into this, I thought what I would have seen in the male characters is a lot of this like toxic masculinity where they're um, almost arrogant and macho and chauvinistic. And I haven't really gotten that from any of the male characters yet. There's almost a, um, I'm not gonna say all, but I, I'm thinking of the male elf, um, the one, the king? Who, not the king, the son, I'm gonna pull up his name, um, El, Elrond. Elrond is, um, right now to me, he's reading as patient, as an active listener. Um, I still feel like he has an agenda and a motive. I haven't picked up on what that is. Even if it's already been revealed, I'm still trying to place everybody. And like, you know, this is, there's a big world going on. So just trying to understand like how everybody's falling into it. Um, but even the, um, the dwarf who's the prince, his father is the king. I'm missing his Durin. name. Durin. Durin. I like Durin a lot. I just like that he's this, um, really committed husband and father, and he's very protective of his tribe. So all of the characters right now, for this time period seem very emotionally evolved and mature at a time where it's like a very medieval setting where you would think there's this brutality in the world, but there's this sensitive side to each of the characters. So everybody's kind of got me hooked. You know, there's nobody who I'm like, um, can't stand that guy or uh, everybody's, two-dimensional yet and I feel like we haven't yet seen the full side of everyone what do you think of first of all the guy who falls from the sky in the meteor and second mm. of all the the elf who's in the southlands his name is Arondir and he has this little romance going on with Bronwyn 
mm-hmm. healer of the people there. So I love Ron Beer. Yeah, I love him too. I love Colin. Him. I don't know what you think of him. Yeah, no, I I really like him, and and you know I think so fascinated about that story arc and that, and that storyline is um, mainly that it's taking place. And correct me if I'm wrong, Heather, but it's taking place in Mordor. Yeah, so we know, obviously, for those of you that have seen the Lord of the Rings, we know what's coming. We know that this land that seems so beautiful and bountiful um, and green um, is not going to be that anymore. Um, and there's some allusions to that and some, some mentions of how these people had allied with uh, Morgoth in the past and actually were kind of part of, of some of the, the negative interactions that they had, which I think is so interesting. And, and to be honest, you know, taking even a step back to talk about the plot kind of from a 10, 15,000 foot level, I just, I, I think it's a um, interesting and I, I think it will end up being a strong decision from the writers to kind of start us off on multiple different storylines at the same time, because, you know, there's, um, and for those of you maybe haven't seen or kind of following along at home, like there is kind of multiple stories happening at the same time. And as we know with these types of structures in TV, eventually, at some point, these are all going to intersect. And so I'm, I'm starting to kind of think through how, uh, you know, the storyline in the Southlands is going to connect with the stranger and how Galadriel is going to connect with the, with the Southlands and move in and about and how the Dwarven storyline is going to kind of move. So it's, it's kind of interesting to see those threads like, uh, you know, start to take shape. Yeah, there are. Totally oh, go ahead, Ashley. Go ahead. I've been wondering about that, like how all of the stories are going to connect and merge together at one point. There are two characters who have, actually, now I think about it, have annoyed me just a little bit. But I think it's a little too early. You had mentioned him already, Heather, the one who fa- falls out of the sky. The stranger. Stranger. Okay, I'm gonna need that storyline to like pick up a little bit because right now I'm just getting a lot of like bewildered interactions and looks and I'm like, okay, hurry up, I need answers. And then there's the uh, son of the the human um, mother and son couple. Oh yes. The the son who has uh, the weapon um, I don't know what it is about him that is just annoying me. As he I annoys me too. Together, maybe it will become clearer. It might be that he's so um, stubborn and secretive and he's kind of playing with fire and he doesn't really know what he's playing with and endangering everyone around him. That might be what's really got me annoyed but um annoying he's kind of being a typical preteen or teen I think just like not paying attention to the severity of what he's doing he's like no this is fine I'm gonna play around with this obviously evil thing exactly and I think that's what has got me just like annoyed with the entire scenes (laughs) but also how he's treated a rondier what's the elf a rondier a rondier um who is basically his father thank you thank you oh, not and basically it's like, don't who bite the hand father? that feeds you um, <laughs> you have all of these adults in the room looking out for you and you're being a little shit about it yeah um, but i'm trying to be patient with him 
So we'll see how that, and maybe this is the, maybe this is the event in his life that matures him and humbles him. So maybe we're just seeing his coming of age story. Maybe he will merge with Nori from the, in Poppy, the Harfoots. I don't know how his story is going to play out or who they're going to meet, but I, I kind of have a prediction that they will cross paths at some point. So we'll see. One, one thing, um, transitioning here for a second, that I think I was really impressed with, and, and I think has been pretty uh, unanimous online, is the money that they have spent to build the world and make it look nice has been well worth it. It is a fully realized world. And I just think the world building in particular in the first two episodes, um, Bazandur, no, how do you say it, Heather? Uh, the Dwarven Kingdom. Kazadum. Kazadum looked unreal. And Amazing. The CGI work, everything, the, All the of it. details on how they farm, the like, things that are there, I think are really fascinating. And um, I was a little skeptical, to be honest, going into this about some of the visuals. Um, but I've been really, uh, really taken aback by some of the world building. And I know, Heather, you've been kind of paying attention to that. I don't know if you have any kind of other kind of thoughts about the world and, and what they've been building so far. Yeah, no, you're right. They have, I think it is money well spent. They have fully realized these separate cultures. So the Harfoots who are, um, essentially the forerunners or the, ans uh, the ancestors of hobbits. So initial, so when hobbits in the Lord of the Rings, which is, you know, sort of based on hobbits, right? They're fixed, they're farming and they live in villages and right, they're not wandering around, but their ancestors wandered. So the Harfoots are kind of the ancestors. Just learn something new. Got it. Okay. <laughs> and what I love about the, the beauty of like, the design of their culture is around like they're hiding all the time. So they, they blend into the landscape, everything that they um, bring with them and build and wear is, is very much like pulled from nature, from plants, from grasses, you know, um, they're, it's a, the design of their culture is very much in keeping with the type of people they are or, or characters they are. So that's really cool. There's the, then, and then the other sort of other end of the design spectrum is the elves and they, you know, Galadriel, I absolutely love that armor she wears. It has the chain mail that's dotted with little metal stars kind of um, throughout it. It's really gorgeous. Um, and they all have, you know, beautiful <laughs> gowns and beautiful um, gold and silver jewelry and uh, things like that. And then the the world of the Southlands, which is where um, Theo and, and Bronwyn are is again in, in and of itself a farming culture, a different culture to the Harfoots and the elves. And um, they are sort of more like, you know, your typical village life in the medieval time. And then the last, the fourth sort of um, culture that we see, at least in episodes one and two, is Kazadum, which is amazing. You're right, Colin. It's like the shafts of light that come down that enable them to grow vegetables the waterfalls, the carp, like that's the other thing about dwarf, dwarf worlds is that they tend to be like highly decorated with carving, um, obviously heavily influenced by sort of Nordic motifs, but it's just gorgeous. It's beautiful. I mean, I just love everything about the dwarven world that they've created. 
Uh, I, and I think if we were power ranking them, I, I, I do think the Dwarven world is first. But to be honest, yeah. the, the Harfoots, and it has that same um, pastoral um, energy mm -hmm. that I think people love about Hobbiton. I mean, part of the charm of, the, I think, a fellowship is just how much time we get to spend in the Shire and how much you just want to be there. Like, mm -hmm. there's a reason that um, the biggest tourist destination in New Zealand is a full-sized set that you never took down of Hobbiton because people want to go and experience that kind of energy. And I think, to your point, Heather, the way that they kind of took all the different um, things that people were wearing and all those little details and incorporated into it really made them seem like a kind of really fully actualized culture. Yeah, absolutely. And um, that reflects the depth of Tolkien's writings and all the time that he took to create all this detail, they're representing and putting that same amount of, I think, love and care into visually depicting these um, these different cultures. And one thing I wanted to, too, I wanna to mention about Harfoots and Hobbits in general is that this is another theme of Tolkien's that even the smallest, quote unquote, like even the choices of the smallest people can make a difference in the in the world. The evil can't be fought by one big bad fighting one big good. It has to be won by all the, the tiny thousands and thousands of choices that everyday people make. And Poppy is, you know, has kind of decided to help this stranger who's blown apart on their <laughs> on their way to wherever they're going on their migration. He's like, you know, struck the ground and comes out of this meteor and she's decided to help him. And that choice will have some kind of implication and we don't know yet what, what end that choice will come to. It might be good, maybe, who knows? Like maybe the stranger is a bad guy, in which case her choice is, um, while well-intentioned, is gonna turn out to be um, not good for the plot, but we'll see. Ashley, I don't know if you, you mentioned, you said you think we've seen Sauron. Did you mean the stranger? Um, I did not. I did not mean the stranger. I don't want to give it away yet in case I'm going to save that for episodes three and four. Okay. Because I do think we've, um, met Sauron, but I'm not sure that the stranger is a good guy. I mean, there was some symbolism in one of the episodes where these, um, uh, fireflies were whizzing around him and, all of a sudden the light went out and they all just withered. And so I, I don't necessarily know if that's a premonition of what's to come or if that is more of a direct reflection on him and the powers that he has. I, I'm not sure, but the fact that you have this symbol symbolism where you have light and clarity all around you and then it just kind of withers and dies I don't necessarily think that's a good sign um that's actually a really beautiful observation that you made um and I love Poppy's reaction to the death of those fireflies that actor <laughs> she is incredible in the way that she it it really is what I got from that moment when she reacts and she says um, Nori, look, the fireflies are dead, or what? I don't can't remember her, the line she uses, but the look on her face is one of total, like, shock and betrayal. Mm -hmm. Like, how could, and I don't, I think her reaction is, 
I don't care who you are. You might be good, you might be bad, but how could anybody kill fireflies or kill this, you know, kill this life that is like glowing and beautiful. And I, I just, she was that moment. She said so much in just that one look. She did. She did. And so do you think that means the stranger is bad because he killed those fireflies? Or do you I think don't know it's... if he is bad. I just uh, think he is maybe just alluding to, or this is we're just getting clues as to obstacles to come. You know, I, I don't know if that if it means that he is an evil force. Um, maybe he's trying to prevent bad or. You know, it could, it's a little too early for me to tell. I think the show runners are playing around with it and they want yeah. there to be some ambiguity. Um, the, the kind of the most prominent theory is not that he's Sauron because in the story, Sauron, as I said, comes to them as this like wise, fair being. So mm -hmm. he doesn't, he doesn't land in the middle of a forest with wild, crazy hair, you know, like that just mm -hmm. doesn't have that Sauron vibe for the second age. But the kind of the going theory in all the chat is that this is Gandalf, who's one of the five wizards who are sent to Middle-earth during the Second Age to help fight the evil that's kind of growing. And um, Gandalf, as one of the five wizards, loves the hobbits. He's the only wizard who cares about them. He's the only wizard who pays attention to them. And his insight and it. his wisdom that these are a hardy folk who can help fight evil mm -hmm. turns out to be the ultimate defeat of the evil because it's the hobbits who are able to persevere to the end and bring that ring to the very brink of destruction, mm -hmm. not the elves, not the men, and certainly not the dwarves. And his wisdom in trusting these folk is once again, a very Tolkien thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I kind of, I'm not, I'm still not sure it's Gandalf because I don't know why Gandalf would be so completely befuddled. This guy is like, mm -hmm. I don't even know how to talk or dress right. or eat snails or anything. But if it's going to be anybody, any of the wizards, it's probably Gandalf. It might explain why he does in fact have this affection for the hobbits because they helped him when he first arrived. Who knows? Oh. I've also seen a theory about Radagast. Oh brown. yeah, Radagast. And um, and then there was another one um, of uh, Tom. Bombadil? Uh, you think it's Tom Bombadil? I, that's, I, I saw that online, that that's maybe a possibility. Colin, I, you and I have talked about this. I, if you haven't read the book, so you don't know, Tom Bombadil annoys me. <laughs> he, he's annoying. He's, he, what's intriguing about him is that he is totally unaffected by the ring. He doesn't want it. He, does, he can see people like, you know, when you put the ring on, you disappear in Lord of the mm -hmm. Rings, right? He, he can still see you. He is Tolkien's um, like envisioning of the spirit of a place. He's literally the spirit of Middle Earth. So, but that's all great, right? But he has the most annoying poetry that he spouts of like, hey, lolly, lolly, dilly dally. Like, I can't stand <laughs> it. This is this is where Tolkien goes a bridge too far for me, and I'm like, I can't follow you there. <laughs> All right, well then let's hope it's not Tom Bombadil because I think you're gonna have an opinion if it is. <laughs> um, 
Colin, general, what's your general reaction to the whole, these first two episodes? Yeah, you know, to be honest, I was pretty skeptical going into this. I was not convinced that it was going to be good for a whole slew of reasons. And I was pretty surprised by how much I was kind of taken with it. Is it perfect? No. Are there some things that I'm I'm kind of waiting to see? Yes. But in general, I, I actually was really surprised by how much I enjoyed watching it. And, you know, I will say there's a similarity. And it's really interesting that Amazon decided to release this at the same time as House of Dragon. Um, but mm-hmm. there is this just energy to be back in Middle Earth and how exciting that is. And even if it's a facsimile, you know, I think that there are there are some remnants of that for me that just makes me, I'm just, I love it so much that um, I'm starting to kind of get sucked in on it. So my kind of initial reaction is a thumbs up. I'm waiting to see kind of how it goes. Um, but overall, a really, really good start. I agree. Thumbs up for sure. Especially with episodes, you know, one and two. And I could just live in this world forever. Um, not really having the background on all of these different realms of people. Um, I think if I would choose, I would want to be on the island of Numenor. Um, but I will see. I'm just having a good time exploring all these worlds with them. Well, I have um, my reaction. I have a lot of reactions, uh, particularly for these first two episodes. So buckle up. But um, (laughs) (laughs) but I do, I agree with you guys. In the main, I'm enjoying it. I think that the world building is gorgeous. I think that the um, the act, all the actors are really good. I just, I love them all. And um, I love a greater representation of diversity in front of the camera. I really like that. Um, I don't understand in any way why anyone thinks that's not Tolkienian because, I mean, we can talk later, um, Colin, and I, and I know we will, about some of the problems inherent in his imagining of people's but in the main, his whole thing is there's a multiplicity of races and they all have to fight this one evil thing and they all have to work together and they have to cooperate. Anyway, so I love, I just, I just love the diversity in front of the camera. And um, my big problem, my, my overarching issue with it is the way that they represent the elves. It just, like to me, you can, you can have made up storylines and you can invent um, motivations for people, and you can fill in the gaps that Tolkien didn't fill in. But you have to you have to realize these characters in the spirit in which he created them. And unfortunately, with the elves, they fall so short. And I'll, my main example of this is Gil-galad is the High King in Middle Earth. He's an elf who came from Valinor over to Middle Earth and established this kingdom um, in Eregion, and he's wise and far-seeing and patient. He is not a grasping politician who's gonna banish some elves to get rid of them by sending them to Valinor on a ship that like he's giving them permission to go. All that is total crap because at this stage in the, in the books, the elves can come and go back and forth between Valinor and Middle-earth without any problem. Like there's no, nobody lets them back in. Like they just, they can come, you know, they come and go back and forth. 
Galadriel's not allowed to, but that I'll talk about later because that has has to do with her her rebellion. Um, but the idea that he would be like, "Hey, Galadriel, I want to get rid of you and your you know rabble rousing ways." So I'm going to have a ceremony where I pretend I'm happy with you and I'm rewarding you for something, and then I'm going to ship pack you off back to Valinor. It's just nonsense. And then why? Okay, all right. Elves do not need speechwriters, okay? Elrond, I know, is like writing a speech for Gilgalad to give at this ridiculous event. But again, like that's just not, elves in Tolkien's imagining are, they're like almost like unfallen beings in a way, right? They don't have human concerns. They mostly just sit around all day and create beautiful things and sing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So, I mean, it's they, just- They didn't feel as ethereal as they felt um, in the original. Exactly. Mm. And then, and the worst thing of all is when Gilgalad pulls Elrond aside, he's like, look, I know you're only half elven and I know you want to get ahead. So why don't you work with this guy, Celebrimbor, and then I'll promote you to VP like you've been wanting to be promoted for all this time. Mm -hmm. It was like that kind of feeling. Like, mm -hmm. hey, go and work with this guy in a green gown. <laughs> I mm -hmm. didn't like that outfit. He was go and work with Celebrimbor and um, help him. And, you know, it just was like two politicians scheming. And so I'll stop there. But that is my, you know, everybody else I liked. And by the way, yeah. Ar Arondir is the one elf who is like a Tolkien elf. He's principled and strong and okay. steady and steadfast. He's willing to sacrifice. He has a love of beauty, in, the, in this case, this woman. But it's just, mm -hmm. he's like a real elf. Why, one of the reasons I love him so much. All the others, Galad Galadriel is a lot like her character in the book. Because she in, her, in the book, she is strong-willed. Mm -hmm. And she's wise, but she's very strong-willed. And she, like mm -hmm. you said, Ashley, she will not let anyone get in her way. Yeah. But the other ones, I'm just like, I, I could throw you out the window right now. <laughs> and I'm done. <laughs> I, I do think that's a really important point, though, um, and especially as we get to this kind of interesting, I mean, look, both, most fantasy series nowadays that make it to TV are using direct source material um, in terms of its plotting and a whole slew of other mm -hmm. concerns. And I think it's really fascinating that in this instance, there is no direct source material. There is other parts of it that are around, of course, there's the original text, there's Cimmerillion, there's a whole host of things that Tolkien has written, but it is not, we're not, they are creating their own story. So it is going to be an interesting um, interaction to see how these non-canon things are kind of happening inside a canon world. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that will continue to be a point of, of stress and friction over the next few few weeks. But I will say what, I, what one point and one, I think, interesting attention to detail that I wish that they even dug more on is, um, and to your point a little bit, Heather, the conflict between Elrond and Durin um, actually is a good example of elf dwarf conflict because um, to Elrond, 20 years really is nothing. But to Durin, that's like mm -hmm. a quarter of his life. Mm -hmm. And so that is a really um, kind of interesting perspective and a good way, I think, that they showcase some of that. But I, I really wish they dug more into it. Mm -hmm. I definitely, I'm glad you brought that up because that's a perfect example of the filling in the gaps and imagining motivations and putting flesh on the, you know, the bones of the friendship between them that works. 
the way Durin acts, even though this stuff is not technically like canon, is the way a dwarf would act. The way that Elrond interacts with him as a friend of a dwarf is the way an elf would. That is great. I got no problem with that. That's why would, I love Arondir. Do you think an elf would participate in that right? No, oh, yeah. Yeah. Because they, yeah, because they, um, they're, both elves and dwarves are as old as each other. Humans come later in the creation story. But they, you know, they've been, they're kind of like siblings in a way. They've been around a long time. And I think they respect each other's traditions. They do have, a, over time, the, you know, the, the enmity between them grows and they become more like their enemies more. But towards the beginning, there's a lot, in fact, Celebrimbor, the dude in the green velvet gown, <laughs> he has a super strong friendship with a dwarf called Narvi. So yeah, they're, they do have friendships. I think that's totally feasible. What's not the way an elf would act is this Gilgalad guy who swans around in a gold cloak and looks up at the sky and acts like a politician. I can't stand him. I think it is so interesting because um, I think it's hard. I empathize with the writers here. You know, given how much money they spent on this show, they maybe could have spent some more time on it to non-humanize non-human characters. That makes sense. So yeah. I, I can empathize with that, but it is really interesting just to kind of unpack a little bit how um, how a lot of the elvish plotting and and are kind of not plotting and scheming, plotting as in kind of the story mm -hmm. around their storyline is uh, to your point, Heather, kind of not really how they would act. And to me, there's no reason to create that type of motivation in them. You could do other things. Like mm -hmm. that's why I love that you brought up this story of. Um, Durin and Elrond and the friendship that they're developing between those two characters. I love it. It's really cool. It's rich. It's moving. Mm -hmm. I really enjoy it. Um, I also love Arondir and his relationship with um, his sort of captain. I can't remember the name of his captain. Who's like, we're leaving now. We're going to go away. Yeah. Uh, but they don't because they get captured. Anyway, mm -hmm. I love all those. To me, that's like how elves would behave and it, it preserves the, the um, spirit of it. I am not a canon purist. I do not care that Disa doesn't exist in the books. I don't care that Arondir and Bronwyn don't exist. I am all for that. I just don't like it when they take an elf and make them into, you know, somebody in Congress. It just really mm. annoys me. Well, and speaking of things that don't exist, um, they made up a bunch of different places, right? And um, that didn't exist as well. You mean um, the the visualizing of the Southlands, which will eventually become Mordor? Yeah, like the the Tower. Um, can't remember. Ostirith. Oh. The Tower. Yeah, of that's, that's never mentioned. They made that up. These towns are kind of never mentioned. I, I I wasn't expecting them to do that, to be honest. Even though it's totally off canon. Um, so I guess they had more creative license to do it, but it's just, I think it's really interesting how they're, they're kind of um, starting to kind of play with that. And, and to be honest, I, I'm, I want them to play with it more and create more worlds and kind of build on this wonderful foundation that Tolkien created. Um, and, you know, one of the things, and I think you guys alluded to it kind of at the top, but I've been really fascinated in is just the whole production of this. And I mean, this is the most expensive television show ever created. Really? A hundred percent. I mean, I think Amazon, I don't know if they spent a billion dollars, but it's upwards of 750 million in the production thus far. 
And oh I was kind of in preparation for today was looking at it. And and I, I I know this is a little hard to believe, but I'm pretty sure the the kind of per episode um budget for this um was <laughs> I I I just can't even believe it. I'm saying it out loud. Um was $89.4 million an episode. Oh my God. What? $89.4 million, um, which in comparison, you know, at this article, which we'll link in the show notes for everybody, um, it, the Game of Thrones um, at its height was only $6 million, um, to $15 million an episode. And so that part of that price tag is actually just the fact that it cost them $250 million to buy the rights and oh. produce this. But Got some of that it. is also just everything that's going into it, the production in New Zealand, the actors, just all the, the costs. But it is mm-hmm. an incredible amount of money per episode. And I think it is also interesting in kind of the streaming wars that this is really Amazon Prime's really big push to try to get something like Game of Thrones. You know, they have a couple of different um, TV shows and products that people really enjoy, but something like Game of Thrones that really can can launch it and propel it forward. Because I think, in terms of the streaming wars, Prime has never really been um, top top of the order. Well, and we're going to have you know, to track this. We're going to have to see if if it's worth the. I mean, that's my billion dollar or billion dollar question: is is spending a billion dollars? I mean, it gets you a beautiful, beautiful looking show for sure, but is it? Is, is this $90 million an episode? Is that, and this is what you Time create? Time will tell. I'm curious. Is that worth it? So we'll, we'll see. And um, yeah, I think it's something that I'm definitely going to be asking um, kind of as we go along. Real quick before we wrap up, what do you guys think of the music? I'm really <laughs> glad you brought this up. <laughs> Ashley's like, eh. Well, Ashley, you go first. Cause I, I, I Wait, have. The mu- music, it, this is for me more of a rule of thumb in tv shows and movies music is the one thing i will remember the most that is the one thing i'll be like oh yeah that show had great music let me download that song or just the score in general but with this unmemorable i really don't i i really can't think of even as we've been talking about this now can't even get any theme songs in my head so um i would give it just a, eh, it's okay that's my final judgment on it go ahead colin i know you, i'm sure you have a loaded opinion so i will say howard shore's original theme is as close to you can get to perfection it is just perfect. Um, and I really like Bear McCreary, um, who did who scored this. He scored uh, Battlestar Galactica. Um, he scored a number of different TV shows that we all really like and really like his music. And so I agree, actually. It is, it is not as memorable. Um, and it's certainly not a punching point. But I like Bear so much that a part of me just kind of likes the atmosphere that it sets. But it is nowhere near as as the Howard Shore um, score. Because, I mean, that is, you can't beat that. Yeah, and he composed the opening <laughs> opening music, just the very, just the opening scene, or sorry, mm-hmm. um, opening 
theme music and it's beautiful it's got french horns in it it's very you know kind of in keeping with the music he did for the lord of the rings films bear mccreary then did the rest of it and i am <clears throat> i go back and forth it's very sort of earworm -y for me i like like when i wake up in the morning like I'll, it'll be playing in my head the the casa doom track with the dwarves it sounds like hammers like you know under the mountain and uh -huh. the um the harfoot themes which un which unfortunately for me just make me think of outlander which is a show that i love but is vastly different from this show it like he just sort of has borrowed from that and um galadriel's he, like he did do outlander yeah oh. and i i mean i i loved his stuff in outlander but it's sort of it's like he just copied and pasted for the harfoots so i go back and forth i think i mean I think there's moments of brilliance in it, but I think he way over eggs the pudding. He just overdoes it for every single thing. Um, so yeah. Got it. Well, I mean, I feel like I that was maybe an unpopular opinion with the music. I'm gonna try and listen again. I'm gonna pay I more attention. I think you should be honest. I mean, I I I, I know people who are like, this is this music is crap. So so and then I know it other people who are like I love it, I love it, I want to get the soundtrack. So I don't know. Yeah, but I just am really excited to kind of talk through the next few episodes with you. I can't believe um, I there's already three and four. Three and four is coming up. And I just, I don't know. I have, I've really enjoyed uh, watching it. And I've even enjoyed um, talking about it with you guys. Even more enjoyed talking about it with you guys. Yeah, this yeah. Uh, painting of the whole picture was very helpful. It, it helped me fill in some gaps here. So now I'm going to watch with a fresh set of eyes. So we're going to be doing, okay, so next episode is going to be three and four. We're going to talk about, not sorry, the next episode of this podcast is going to be discussing episodes three and four. And Ashley and I have both seen these. So I think there's going to be even more to get into. It's going to be, Colin, I think you're going to like it. Yeah, I, I may or may not immediately <laughs> watch three and four as soon as we're done here because I'm kind of getting excited. Awesome. All right. All right. Well, everybody tune in next whatever week. I'm not sure how often we're going to publish these, but um, we will be doing the whole series. Um, so catch us later. Three friends from work signing off. Yeah. So. Uh, oh, uh, look at the time. I think, uh, I, think <laughs> I have a hard stop. So um, we'll have to, uh, we'll have Reschedule to we'll have later. Find some time to talk about that. We pack literally an entire meeting's worth of discussion about work into five minutes, and then we spend the rest of the stuff time talking about this stuff. Pretty much. Hopefully, none of our bosses will ever find this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you.